chapter 16 today. I'm going to deal with, up to this point, what is probably the most wicked king of Judah, southern kingdom, which by and large has been uh, godly kings, or at least, you know, semi-godly. Not There's certainly been problems with some of them, but Ahaz stands out as being particularly wicked, so we want to deal with that today. And uh, remember, there were two kings that were wicked before this, that short-lived kings that didn't last very long, uh, who had married into Ahab's family. And that you know, the Bible makes it clear that connection that uh, that's kind of the, that influenced was part of their problem. Ahaz, of course, is. Uh, far removed from that. Hey guys, so let's stand and read, let's, we'll read chapter 16 of 2 Kings, and get an idea of what's going on here. Then we'll also have to, we'll, we'll look a little at 2 Chronicles 28 because uh, that adds some, uh, information as well. 2 Kings chapter 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So there's the differentiation. Either you followed after David or you followed after Jeroboam. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and even... So in some senses, even to some degree worse, he burned his sons as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So there's an innuendo here that uh, here's a king who is doing the very things that God drove out the nations earlier, and he's doing them. So the I think the innuendo is, uh, what do you think is going to happen if you fall into the same sins as the Canaanites? Uh, verse 4, And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Raisin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to raise war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Raisin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilsar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria. Now why he would say, I am your servant and your son, I think he's, he's just, you know, this guy uh, had much more co- cohesion and love and, uh, you know, fellowship with these wicked kings. <laughs> Right, than he did his own people, and certainly the Lord. <clears throat> so we have a connection. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent as a present to the king of Assyria. 
And the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carried his people captive to Kir, and he killed Razan. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath Pileser, the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was in Damascus. Now, this was the altar that the northern tribes, oh, excuse me, this was Damascus, the, the capital of Syria. So this is the altar of the gods who were unable to protect their people. Uh, he kind of goes up to meet the king of, of Assyria in like a victory celebration, right? And he notices these altars of these gods who hadn't done uh, the Syrians any good. And so King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with the king, the father that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the uh, priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus and the king viewed the altar, the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the house, of the front, from the front of the house, from the place where, between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it in the north side of, the, of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offerings, and the evening grain offerings, and the king's burnt offerings, and his grain offerings, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering, and their drink offering, and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering, and the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar <clears throat> shall be for me to inquire by. Now, if you are up on your understanding of the temple worship, he's basically saying we're going to worship Yahweh, or at least we're going to do the things that we we're supposed to do to worship Yahweh, but we're going to do it on this new altar. And the altar, the brazen altar that was there that God had established, put that over here, and when I decide I want to make inquiry, in other words, divination, you know, speak with the dead or whoever, the spirits, I'll use that altar for that. So this is just complete idolatry and paganism that he's brought into the temple. And then in verse 16, you write, the priest did all this, as King Ahaz commanded. I think some translations would have this Uriah, but here is Uriah. And King Ahaz cut off of the frames of the stands and removed the bases from them, and he took down the sea, that is the labor, from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on the stone pedestal. And the covered way of the Sabbath that he had built beside the that he had built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with their, his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. You may be seated. So quite a wicked king. Uh, especially so. He brings idolatry into the temple, and we'll find out, uh, although Hezekiah was one of the great godly kings of, it, of Judah, we'll find out that uh, at the time, by the time 
the Babylonians come to find it to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and, and carry them captive that they had brought um, all the different idols that worship into the temple proper and, and in fact you read that in Ezekiel Ezekiel talks about that he's given a vision of that so um, last week we uh, dealt with King Uzziah remember he was a godly king but took it upon himself to worship, to approach God in an unauthorized way, and was struck down as a leper. We, we talked about how that he was dealt harshly with because he dared to approach the Lord on his own terms. Uh, he was a believer, and I think that's why the Lord takes care to chase him and doesn't let him get away with that. There were certainly many more wicked kings uh, who never suffered for their sin. But we understand, of course, that that's the way the world works, that the lost people get by with with their wickedness in this life. Many Christians, uh, for their, for the, for their uh, good, for their godliness, suffer. They suffer now, but we know that the day of judgment is coming. And so we, we, that's why we, are, we can live with the fact that wicked people sometimes seem to enjoy life now. That's okay, because this is not what the end of life is. Then we saw that Israel teaches of election. If the Lord didn't elect some, and that remnant, we know that none would be saved. And so those are some of the things that we looked at last week. And so Ahaz stands out because he is the first overtly, and certainly the worst a king up to this point, and uh, he alone receives a, a, an evaluation that goes beyond even that, well, he sinned after the sins of Jeroboam. Here he says he sinned uh, as the kings of Israel, and in some cases even worse. He, he actually offered his children to uh, the god Moloch. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and, and so uh, I think that's why the Lord brings swifter and severe judgment on him. He didn't always do this with the with the northern kings, but here Ahaz um, has uh, the Syrian and the king of Israel <clears throat> come down and immediately start to uh, war against him. I think the Lord is chastening him. No, you're not allowed to do this. You're a you're a, a king of my people, and so uh, then we see that he. Uh, tries to remodel the temple in order to establish his idolatry. In verse 4, we notice the term every. Again, we, we, there's a, uh, things are even worse than normal um, with Ahaz. In verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, the high, priests, high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Oh, she's in chapter 15. I meant to be in chapter 16. I'm sorry. Uh, verse uh, 4, <clears throat> and the, the, the chapters are so similar, that it's, you have to stop and think about it. And he, he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, it doesn't mean that every tree in the land had a, some a sort of, was used for idol worship or false gods, right? But it's a it's a hyperbole. In other words, they were, they were so prevalent. They were, it was ubiquitous. They were everywhere, right? And uh, that's the point here that he. But not only did he allow it, like some kings had allowed him, but now we find out that he, the verb is singular, that he was worshiping under these things in uh, the high places. 
uh, it wasn't the people that were just doing it. He was involved in it. So, so it's a little bit different than we've noticed before. And so, as I said in verse 3, there's a bit of an innuendo here because Ahaz is worshiping the false gods of the people of the land to the point that he's even offering his children on the, uh, in the, to the god Moloch and so sacrificing his own children. Uh, the Bible speaks of children passing through the fire. Uh, Moloch was, was one of the gods of, the, of pleasure in that land, like Baal. And uh, it was a big bronze uh, hollow uh, with the body of a man and the, the head of an um, ox. And it was hollow inside. It had arms that came out, and they would build a fire inside until the arms were glowing hot red. And then they would place their child on that, the, the baby on that those arms and kill them. And that's what they were doing. And so uh, the king was doing this, let, let alone what he was allowing in the land. And uh, of course, but the but the the innuendo part of it, as I said before, was that they're they're offering to the gods who uh, had not helped the Canaanites, but Israel had cast them out. And so um, we would expect that such behavior is going to have some effect. And, of course, we know that because this was uh, continued to be the case, and eventually the Lord drives them out of the land, just like he, and he, he promised in Deuteronomy. He said, I spew these people out because of their, their abominations. And don't think for a moment, he says, uh, before they enter the land, that if you fall into the same sins, I'm going to spew you out of the land. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So we're beginning to see this even in Judah now. <clears throat> now, today, no doubt our secular nation does it in, in secular states all across the world don't see themselves as responsible to God they don't live in any fear of judgment and so they're doing the same things but they, they but they don't consider themselves to be religious so they change the the name of these things uh, these the same rights though the R-I-T-E-S uh, they're doing it, but, but they don't want to sound religious because they think that, that uh, you know religion is, is silly. But they're doing the same thing because man hasn't changed. And so we might not practice fertility rights in the name of a religion, but you think about what happens at, at, on the beaches at spring break in our universities where uh, sexual immorality is rampant, is part of our culture. What's the difference? So, so these people are out there uh, practicing these things in the name of for, in, in their, for their God, hoping it's going to help them some way. What's the difference if you say, "Well, I don't believe in religion, but I'm doing the same thing and I'm living for the same reason"? Uh, that's because that's what sin does. Sin doesn't change, and we don't offer our children on fiery arms anymore. But what's the difference when you've got thirty to fifty million people? A year, they say, on earth, that uh, abortions every year. We're offering our children. Nothing changes. You could call it different names, but sin is sin, right? And so we're not really that surprised at what the people are doing here. We shouldn't be, um, because we see it going on today. Now, in, in these days, had the king been uh, righteous and he found parents putting their child to death. That that parent who did that would be would would in turn die. That was a capital offense. Um, 
Because that's, and we learn from that that that's how the Lord sees this. When a child, when a parent kills his child, that parent should die. That, that child, that parent has committed murder. Now, in case you weren't aware of that, let me just take this opportunity to, to clarify that the mainstream anti, anti-abortion groups in this country refuse any legislation that would hold the mother accountable, the parents accountable in abortion. So they're, they're against abortion, but they're not willing to hold the parents accountable for it. The, the legislation can't be like that. And so they will actively fight anti-abortion legislation if in any way it would hold the mother accountable. And because of that, because you have these uh, right-to-life legislation that, that real anti-abortion people hold, Christian anti-abortion people, a right-to-life is that that child from conception is to be considered human and to deliberately kill it is to murder. They will actively fight that, even if it means that abortion is allowed to continue. And that's happened. It's happened in, uh, for instance, I think it was uh, uh, Arkansas. Where our present, the present Speaker of the House, a conservative Republican, who at that time was uh, in the legislature in, in uh, Arkansas, he killed the anti-abortion bill because it was done in such a way that made it a murder. And they said, no, we're not going to have any part of that. And, and I think we need to understand it. There are people out there, good people who are against abortion, but the Mainstream anti-abortion uh, groups uh, are against it, but uh, only to a point. They don't want to recognize it as murder, and so that's just something we need to be aware of. Because it's murder, is murder, and you say, "Well, preacher, you're getting a little political here." Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's it involves politics. We're talking about morality. We're talking about murdering innocent children, and it, Christians. And there's a lot of Christians caught up in, in what we're talking about here. Christians should be all about protecting the innocent. And, and it's, it's hypocrisy to, to say, well, uh, yeah, we want, we don't want children to die, but we don't want to call it murder. We don't want to punish anybody who would do it. Well, you know, how are you going to stop it? Of course you don't. That's why you have in Ohio, it, 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 uh, it was, you know, part of the Constitution because the, these people, refuse to call it what it is. And as Christians, we just can't, I, don't, I think we have no answer for that kind of stuff when we will downplay this. It was, we're more concerned with the mother's rights than we are that child's rights. The innocent. That that mother who, and father who deliberately engaged in that sexual activity and, and brought that child into existence, they have become responsible to protect that life. And uh, that that's the biblical stance on these things. So, anyway, <clears throat> uh, verse 5 and following, we see that these two kings come up against uh, Ahaz, uh, the king of Syria, the king of Israel, and we, we learn in second, or in second Chronicles that it's generally understood that the reason they did that was because they wanted Ahaz to help them fight against a Tiglath, the, this, this uh the Syrian king, because that was kind of the big power, because we know that Assyria was the, was the first of the major powers in the ancient world. 
And that was the big power of the day. And Ahaz, you know, he didn't want to do that for whatever reasons. And so all of a sudden they turn on Ahaz and they, they just decide to attack him. And so Ahaz, because he doesn't believe in God, doesn't pray to God, he turns right around and he goes behind their back to the king of Assyria and says, hey, help me. And I'll, he gave him, you know, all this wealth. And, and the Assyrian king does do that. Now it's not before the, the two kings uh, kill over a hundred thousand of Judah, carry another two hundred thousand off in captivity, and then the Lord comes, and again, I think you read this in, in Second Chronicles, the, the Lord sends a prophet to the, to the generals there, uh, who, and said, look, I let you, uh, have victory over Judah, but, you're not taking these, uh, all this, uh, the loot and, and these 200,000 people as captives, send them back. And they did that. So they believed the prophet, you know, for whatever reason, they it did send it back. And so that was going on. That's why Ahaz goes behind their back to try to get help, but he doesn't seek the Lord. And the reason why this is somewhat interesting is because of, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to turn there for a second, there's a rather famous prophecy that took place during this time that's of, of some interest. Uh, Isaiah, who's a prophesied at this time, he, he goes to Ahaz and says, Look, the Lord has said, don't worry about these two guys. In about 60 years, they're going to be completely gone, and, and the, the, the seers are going to completely carry them off. They're going to not exist anymore. Don't worry about them. But Ahaz doesn't, he doesn't love the Lord, he's not a believer, and, uh, so he ignores that, and doesn't really take it seriously. In Isaiah chapter 10, uh, excuse me, 7 verse 10, after, uh, telling Ahaz this, and Ahaz really not showing any interest, uh, Isaiah goes on to say, and the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be Deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, you ask me anything you want as a sign that I will deliver you and, uh, I'll give it to you. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds, well, you know, you're not supposed to put the Lord to the test, but when the Lord says put me to the test, it's okay, but he, it shows he has no interest. And he said, this is Isaiah now, through the Lord through Isaiah. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he will, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. And before the boy knows how to choose, refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as has not been uh, come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The king of Assyria will stop there. So a couple of interesting things here. Uh, he says that be, as we went on to read, he says that since you don't trust me to take care of you with these two kings, I'm going to uh, uh, deliver you from them, which he eventually does, but I'm going to send, uh, I'm going to make matters worse for you. And of course that's exactly what happened, because the Lord eventually does remove those, the king of uh, Syria, the king of Israel from 
attacking Judah. But the, the, the king that he put his trust in, instead of the Lord, the king of Assyria, he turns right around and loots, uh, and attacks and loots, uh, Judah himself. So it, it just makes matters worse for himself because he won't obey the Lord. And so, in that, Isaiah says, this is a sign, behold, a virgin shall uh, conceive and, and bear a child. And, and there's debate about exactly who that is, because we know that the word doesn't have to necessarily refer to virgin uh, in, in its Hebrew use. And so, it's, there's debate whether Isaiah had a child, at the, because it was somebody who, before he got to an, an age of discernment, certain things would happen. Was it one of Ahaz's son? Was it Hezekiah? There's there's a lot of controversy, and I'm not sure that we can you know, know for sure. Of course, the important thing is is that Matthew tells us that this was also to be seen as a sign that someday a virgin would have a child, and he would deliver us from our enemies in, in the fullest sense. Of course, that's Jesus Christ, right? And so that's kind of the context of that a prophecy, which was so kind of interesting there. But it just again shows. Um, you know that Ahaz just really didn't care anything about the Lord and worship him anyway and certainly didn't trust in him um, and so he does put his trust in the king of Assyria who uh, turns on him which is what we would expect because we see it all the time even in Christians sometimes we, when we're beset with trouble Instead of being careful to come to the Lord and setting these things before the Lord in prayer and in obedience and in trust and asking God for help, we immediately run to the bank or we run to the world in some way for help. And all that does is compound the problem and make matters worse. Uh, often uh, somebody maybe finds themselves in financial straits and so they rob the Lord's uh money and they use that to get themselves out of trouble as if somehow the Lord is going to honor you in stealing from him and your tithes and offerings uh, you know for whatever problems you have and that's kind of what Isaiah does so remember these kings uh, here recently have done that they've robbed the temple to pay the pagans to help them instead of you know, worshiping the Lord at the temple as they were supposed to or letting the Lord take care of it so when we read all this you know, we, we always have to be careful as Christians not to read these things and say, well, you know what? They're, those people are crazy back there. They're not spiritual. You know, why would they do that? Instead of saying, okay, is it possible that I'm doing the same thing? You know, you know, maybe not the same way, but I, in, in my own way, am not trusting the Lord, but I'm putting my trust in this world or in people or in money or whatever. And, it's the same thing. It's the same sin, even though the circumstances have changed. So we always have to be careful that we don't, you know, just you know, for fail to apply this to our own situation. And so here in verse nine, Ahaz sells out to the world, and it looks for a while like it's going to work. But when we get to Second Chronicles, we find out it did not, and. So, Twenty-eight, nineteen. It says, "For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord." So Tiglath Pileser, Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. It was 
The Lord did that because because Ahaz trusted in men. For Ahaz took a portion of the house of the Lord and the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. That's the lesson right there, right? It's pretty obvious. So so this isn't, you know, don't take brain, it's not not like brain surgery here, right? So, uh, this is what sin and Satan does. And we think that, you know, if we fall into this trap where we're, we're living as if nothing else really matters but, you know, money or fun or fame, and we reject Christ because we want these things more, they will they will eventually become our master. So that's what sin does. That's what the flesh does. It becomes your master if all things aren't given to the Lord. <clears throat> and I think it's kind of the New Testament version of what does a prophet of a man if he gained the whole world but loses his own soul, right? Jesus says as much. And here's an example of this happening. Ahaz does gain a little of the world, but he, of course, loses his own soul in the process. And one of the reasons we know the Bible alone is the only true scripture that all other holy books, man-written books, or not, is because it only speaks to the actual condition of man. It, it What it says about us and our sin and how we think rings true, right? Um and, and that's one reason why we know that uh, this is the word of God, because it, it it is true to experience as you would expect it to be. Someone uh, basically says that Ahaz accepts the king of Israel as his Lord and Savior, which is really the truth. You know, much as we talk about accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, well, Ahaz is doing this, but to the wrong person, to the world, right? And someone put. Uh, this uh, a tune to the tune of my Jesus I love thee uh, this is Ahaz saying my Tig I bribe thee you know I'm your man for thee Yahweh's promises I view as mere sand you mighty oppressor my savior art thou if ever I needed you dear Tiglaf just now and that's what he's doing it's what, as we would sing the song to the Lord this is what he's doing to this man and you can imagine how the Lord views this and why uh, things end so well, so badly for him. And our choice will either always be based on pragmatism or promise. Either we will believe what the Bible says, and we know that, as Pipe, John Piper calls it, the future grace, that when we, we know that things will work out for our good if we obey now, or we look around pragmatically and say, well, well, what's going to work? What, what's going to, and I think a lot of churches have done that. They say, what gets, what fills the pew? And instead of saying, well, now the Bible says that we are to, to preach the word and edify the saints, that doesn't seem to work in the immediate. So what do we do? Well, we're going to entertain them. We're going to have a, a really interesting song service, you know, whatever, you know, music, and something to get people in here, you know, right? raising fundamentalism. Working on the bus ministry and, you know, you'd have hot dog Sunday where everybody got a hot dog or, you know, any way to get people to come to church other than to worship the Lord. It's pragmatic, but it's not built on a promise. And our decisions have to be based on truth and what will work out, work, well, first of all, glorifies the Lord and what will work out best in the end. 
so we got to be careful. And again, it's, this is something we can do without, you know, so you think about maybe a spouse who has an unhappy marriage and, you know, so how are you going to deal with that? Are you going to go based on promise? You're going to go seek godly counsel, um, work through this in some way, communicate with each other, pray, do the biblical things when you have problems like that. Or, well, I'm not getting what I want here at home, so I'm going to find it with somebody else. Well, you know, in the immediate, it might help to some degree, but at the end, it's going to just destroy your life and completely for a Christian, you know, this dishonors the Lord and everything else. So there's countless uh, ways that we can be like Ahaz. We can just, you know, think what, what, you know, all we're thinking about is what's right in front of us and not what the Lord has said, not how things are going to turn out. So, as I said, he goes to the king Damascus for this victory celebration. The, the king of Assyria, they meet in Damascus, one of the defeated capitals. And he sees, he's impressed with this idolatry that hasn't done the people any good. But he has his servant go and build uh, the exact replica so he can worship. He's so impressed by it, and puts it right in the temple. So he never really learns his lesson uh, let me read to you, if you can turn to it if you want to, in Second Chronicles 28. Here, kind of a summary of all this, which is kind of interesting with Ahaz. It says in, in 28, starting in verse 22, In this time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. So, the, 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 the opposition coming against him didn't drive him to the Lord, it drove him away from the Lord. This same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the root of him in all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the houses of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner. In other words, completely just shut down what was supposed to be going on there and does his own thing. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking the anger of the Lord, the God of his fathers. And now the rest of the acts of all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahab slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So he kind of dies and, and, and is treated as he deserves. But, it, but you know, it's, it's just the way the Bible brings it out, that he's, he thinks he's God's going to do him good, but it actually does him harm. And, you know, that's been Israel's history. So why he fell into that trap just shows the power of unbelief um, another thing we see here with his servant um, Uriah, Uriah or Uriah uh, who was a priest who uh, should have stood up to him now he might have cost him his life I don't know but uh, it, it's just an example there where we are not to do whatever we have to do for to save our skin. That, that's again, he's not like his king. He's pragmatic. 
Am I going to disobey the Lord, or disobey the king, and bring his wrath upon me, and who knows what it'll do to me, or am I going to just go along with all this to save my skin? Well, I think that he probably answered to the Lord for that when he died. Uh, the tabernacle and later the temple were supposed to be the best representation of heaven. And of course, God gave the blueprints. It was also a type of the whole sacrificial system, how Christ was going to be our high priest and all that. And by doing this, it was, in a sense, removing their, Israel's identity and becoming like the pagans. And we certainly, as a church, don't want to do that. We've got to remember that the Lord has told us how to approach him. We are here to preach the word. We are here to sing songs about Jesus Christ. We are here to edify the saints, to fellowship with the believers. We are not here to entertain. We're not here to get lost people into the church at the expense of preaching the word of God. And churches can lose sight of who they are and the pattern he has set. And we we cannot afford to do that. So let me just finish in with... uh, Two things here. First of all, we must be careful thinking what the Bible teaches. Uh, we must be careful of thinking that what the Bible teaches us of how God wants to be worshipped and served is somehow deficit and needs to be improved upon. The Bible has all we need uh, to get right with God and to serve Him well. And we, 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 the Bible is, is not deficit. We don't need something else. This, this, um, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with us using our, you know, the, the ingenuity that God gave us, our brains, to carry out, for instance, the Great Commission. You know, the, the, Jesus says, go into all the world, but he didn't say how we were to do that. He didn't say, you know, he didn't tell us every little detail. And so the church has figured out ways to get into other countries and to support the missionaries and to do these things. That's all well and good. But you don't lose sight of what you're doing. You know, you're, you're not there to build hospitals, although that's sometimes a good inroad into it. That's using our ingenuity, right? But you're there to preach the gospel. And, and that's the point. Like I told you about my liberal uncle who was a Southern Baptist back in, in the liberal part of Southern Baptist who was a missionary a uh, medical missionary, and he didn't know the gospel, let alone preach it. All he was there was just to do humanitarian good. He could have cared less uh, about the, because he didn't believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection or anything else anyway, you know. Um, so, uh, the Bible's always got to be the uh, at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, it's kind of like if you went, if you were invited to somebody's house, and then we're going to, you know, have a cookout and have some steak there. And you said, well, okay, I, I'm going to go. Uh, it's one thing to bring a salad and a drink. Maybe if you want to, if they, you know, if they say it's okay or whatever. But if you're invited to go somewhere and you say, okay, I'm going to come over there, but I'm going to bring my own meat and my own grill and I'm going to cook it, then what's, what's going on here, right? You're saying that your friend's planning wasn't good enough, that, that uh, you know, I want to do it my way, and you probably won't be invited back, right? And I think that's, on a lesser scale, is what's happening when we question the Lord, uh, when the central theme of the New Testament worship is Cinderella Cross, the cross of Christ and the Word of God, and we make our worship about anything but that. You know, I've talked to some of you, 
and I've, I've experienced it myself. And who was it? What are you telling me the other day? And I could t- say the same stories too, where the, it, it helped me if, if, if you're here telling me, if one told me this about the, the church that would, no, no, it was actually a guy I bought my car from who used to be a pastor. He said he went to a Unitarian church. Uh, when he, when he resigned, he, he thought, I want to go to a church, some, some of these churches, just to see what it's like that he, that I know are, are not, not Christian, right? Just to see it. You know, he wasn't turning his back on the faith or anything. He said, so the first, first church I went to after I had, uh, resigned the pastorate was, uh, a just Unitarian church. This is over in Ohio somewhere. And he says, this happened to be the Sunday that I was there. Uh, they said, we're, we're not going to sing this particular song anymore because it mentions the name God and that offends people. Right. And so you see, some, they have completely lost their way. Of course, it, it wouldn't call them Christian anymore. We're, we're not going to sing a song in church about the Lord and or mention his by name because we might offend somebody. <laughs> you know? and, and that's what happens. And that's why it's so important you need to pray for Jeff and I that we Never lose focus of what we're here for, no matter what else might be going on, and fall into that, because that's exactly what happens. Um, secondly, then, evil is helped by weakness as much as wickedness. And that's what Uriah, uh, he helps by not standing up to the king. He just uh, lets the king tell him what to do, and he does it. He won't stand up. And so we have a responsibility to stand up for the Lord, for truth. Um, and if we don't, we're aiding and abetting the enemy. And I think that's one reason why we do not give cooperation, for instance. Uh, we don't attend and gift trans weddings because you are aiding and abetting. You are, you are compromising. You are celebrating that which is evil, right? And it should be... It couldn't be more obvious, it seems like, but, you know, it happens and we are, we stand in amazement, but that's, I think, a great example where you kind of forget your way and you forget what's going on here. So, anyway, I'll just close with this. I was reading about um, B.B. Warfield, who was a great Presbyterian back in the day when they were fighting liberalism and they were having a big meeting at Princeton, which we know, of course, all the Ivy League schools have gone into liberalism. And at the day, they were going to have a big meeting to kind of talk about this. And one woman comes up to him and says, I've been praying that there will be peace. No matter what happens, there will be peace. And B.B. Warfield says, well, he says, I'm praying that if we don't do the right thing, there will be a great war. There will be a great, a mighty battle, he says. Because there's times when being peaceful and looking to do what is, brings peace is not the right thing. And Jesus says, I, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, the peace he offers is peace with God, but it's not going to bring peace with this world. And, you know, when we, and there are Christians, and, you know, I know it's it's rough sometimes, and, you know, I've heard them say, you know, well, I'm gonna, you know, they're not going to offer any pushback at any time because they just refuse to offend or cause any problems. 
Well, the problem is the Lord says that if we don't stand up for truth, we're, we're, we're aiding and abetting the enemy. There's times where you have to say no. You have to say, uh, you've got to clarify, you've got to stand on truth, and you've got to call sin, sin. And when we say, look, if you don't, you know, you don't want to be judged as pharisaical, right? So go to this wedding and, and bring a gift. You're saying that it's more important for there to be peace than to stand up for what is right. That we can't do that. And so uh, that's about all I've ever said about that uh, from the pulpit. And probably won't say any more about it, but I think it kind of applies to the situation we're in now. But we need to be passionate about the Lord and passionate, passionate about truth because it's easy to be passionate about all sorts of things. And it's good. You know, we all have hobbies. We all have things we love. And, and that's good and right and fine. But if people can't see that we're most passionate about the Lord and, and this is important because a lot of people say, I love Jesus. But if we're not passionate about the truth, about his word, then we're really not passionate about Jesus Christ. You can, you know, Say whatever you want to say. If you don't stand on this, then I don't, I can't take your supposed love for Christ very seriously, right? And I think that's, the, the world I think knows that full well. Alright, any questions or comments? Thankful for you to stay and we pray that you might open up our hearts and minds to receive your truths, to stand upon it, to, to love your word. Lord, because, uh, it is light, because it teaches us uh, all that we have in Jesus Christ and it, and it, exposes who we are so we might not trust in ourselves and we might not trust in this world because it, it teaches us clearly what these things are and what their end will be. So we're thankful, Lord, that you gave us light and that, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us. For without you, without the Holy Spirit working in us, we are sure to fail and to fail miserably. But we know that if you are with us, that uh, no one can stand against us and we uh, stand on those promises and uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.